0: Okay. All right. This morning we're going to consider chapter 17, The Perseverance of the Saints. And so let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing. Father, thank you for the rich heritage that we have received from our fathers in the faith. As we consider this morning the wonderful reality that you preserve in the state of grace everyone that you save. What a great comfort this is. And as we consider it this morning, send us the Holy Spirit so that we would give you all the honor, praise, and glory for your great goodness, grace, and mercy that you have displayed in our lives. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as we continue with the graces of the Christian life, in chapter 14, they deal with faith, and 15, repentance, and 16, good works. Now in 17, they address the perseverance of the saints. We have in this particular chapter a really striking example of how our Baptist forefathers combined the Westminster Confession written in the 1640s and the First London Confession written in the 1640s. And this would be, would be you know... This is great for a seminary class to be able to have the Westminster Confession, the First London Confession, the Savoy Declaration, and then our Baptist Confession and see how they put it all together. It's not quite so good for a Sunday school class. So what I'm going to do is you have your hymn books with you. You got it open to page 679. You got paragraph one. Paragraph 1 starts with those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, right? Okay. Now, it's funny because I have this color-coded. And I have my Westminster in blue and my First London Confession in red. But I'm not going to bother you with the blue and the red and all that stuff. Because usually blue and red for us has to do with political states, right? So we're not dealing with political states this morning, blue and red. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the Westminster Confession. Then I'm going to read the first London Confession, I parag- or, or shouldn't say paragraph, article that has 50, 52, I think, 52 articles. The first London Confession, Article 23. All right, so first, and I want you to look. And then see if you can figure out how they, quote, pasted it together. First of all, I'm going to read the Westminster Confession. They whom God has accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end, and be eternally saved, period. That's all it says. Okay? Do you see how that's reflected in our confession of faith? All right, now, let me read you the first London Baptist confession written in the 1640s, article 23. All those that have this precious faith brought in them by the Spirit, you see how they added that, can never finally nor totally fall away. Seeing the gifts of God are without repentance. So that, changed to whence, so that he still begets and nourishes in them faith Repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief, and the temptations of Satan, the sensible sight of this light and love be clouded and overwhelmed for a time. Yet God is still the same, and they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they, being engraved upon the palm of his hands, and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. So you see what they did? You see what they did? They took the first London Confession of Faith and the Westminster Confession of Faith, and they glued them together to come up with paragraph one. So in times past, I thought, well, how in the world do you outline something like this? How do you outline this? So in times past, I said, okay, this is what's a, what they got from the Westminster, and I presented that, and this is what they got from the first London, and I presented that. But I said, wait a minute. They came up with a composite. They did change some words. You notice a few little connecting words have been changed, a little word added here, added there. So they did it consciously combining them. And so I'm going to treat it this morning... As one combined total paragraph. And what it sets out, the Westminster, sets out the certainty of perseverance. The first London gives you an overview of perseverance. And so, when they combine them, naturally there's going to be some overlap between paragraph 1 and paragraphs 2 and 3. Because paragraphs 2 and 3 are based pretty much entirely on the Westminster Confession. And so by combining these things, they involve themselves in a little bit of redundancy, but I'm not going to worry about that. So what you have in paragraph, because this is what they did. It is what it is. So first of all, in, in paragraph one, by combining the Westminster and First London Confessions, Our confession of faith sets out the distinguishing features of the perseverance of the saints. Then in paragraph two, it uncovers the solid ground of the perseverance of the saints. And finally, in paragraph three, it deals with a needful qualification regarding the perseverance of the saints, an anomaly, namely the anomaly of backsliding. So, you have an overview of its distinguishing features, then you have its solid ground, and then a necessary qualification. If we would understand fully what the Bible says about how the saints persevere unto the end. Alright, now, the salient features are these. They deal with and present in the first paragraph the subjects, and then the substance, the means, nature, cause, result, and ground of perseverance. First of all, the subjects, true believers, the saints, those whom God has accepted in the beloved, effectually called and sanctified by the Spirit, and given the precious faith of his elect. This statement is a combination of the way that the Westminster and First London Confessions present this subject. And so the subjects are all genuine, true believers and saints. He who began a good work in you will perform it. The essence or substance is the certain continuance in faith and hope of any and every genuinely converted person. They put it this way, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So if you are in a state of grace, you can never go back into a state of sin. John, they appeal to John ten twenty eight, and I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. Neither will any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. And then uh, Philippians 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus Christ. And 1 John 3.9. Whoever is born of God does not commit sin, for his seed remains in him and he cannot sin because he's born of God. He can't go back into a state of sin so that he lives in sin like he used to live in sin. And what are the appointed means? The appointed means of perseverance are the graces of the Christian life. They put it this way, seeing the gifts of God are without repentance, so that he still begets and nourishes in them faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. God who began the good work is going to continue to do it. And then, the contested nature, the difficult struggle. And although many storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they will never be able to take them off that foundation and rock which by faith they're fastened upon. They appeal, the first London appeals to Matthew 7. 24 and 25, the house founded on the rock and the storm beat against it and it didn't fall because it was built on a rock. So that genuine Christianity lasts because it has a solid foundation that no assault can destroy. Even though perseverance takes place in a context of continual struggle. The effectual cause is God's immutability. And omnipotence. Yet God is still the same. Immutability. And they shall be sure to be kept by the power of God. Omnipotence. Immutability. Omnipotence is the effectual cause. Malachi 3.6. I the Lord therefore change not. I the Lord change not. Therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. 1 Peter one five. Who are guarded by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And then the blessed end or result, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession. First, they appeal to 1 Peter 1 9, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. And the redemptive ground is that redemption is planned and accomplished, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. That what happens in the Christian life is grounded on what Christ did on the cross and what God decided before the foundation of the world. And they appeal to Isaiah 49, 16. Behold, I have graven you on the palms of my hand. Speaking about Zion. And so that's the first paragraph. First paragraph opens up the salient or distinguishing features of the perseverance of the saints. And it does so by combining the first London and Westminster Confessions, into one composite paragraph. Okay? Clear with that? All right, the second paragraph. The second paragraph uncovers the unshakable grounds of perseverance. The unshakable grounds of perseverance. This perseverance of the saints... Depends not upon their free will. The free will of Christians is not the grounds of their perseverance. But, but what, is, what are the grounds? The unshakable grounds. Why is it certain that we will persevere in the state of grace? But upon, first, the immutability of the decree of election flowing from the free and unchangeable love of God the Father. Second, upon the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Jesus Christ and union with him. Third, upon the oath of God. Fourth, upon the abiding of his spirit and the seed of God within them. And fifth and finally, and upon the nature of the covenant of grace. So these are the five grounds that they specify. From all which, all these five things, arises also the certainty and infallibility thereof. That Of what? The certainty and infallibility of the perseverance of everyone that is truly saved. Of all who are in our state of grace. Why is it impossible for those in the state of grace to go back into a state of sin? Why is that impossible? Not because of their free will. Well, why? Because of redemption. Because of divine redemption. Divine redemption planned in eternity, divine redemption accomplished in Christ, promised in his covenants, applied in the Christian life. Because of these things, it is impossible. And the very nature of redemption itself. Because of these things, it is impossible. The eternal plan of redemption, the messianic accomplishment, the solemn promise, the personal application, the immutable nature of redemption itself. Because of these five things, it is impossible for those in a state of grace To go back into a state of sin and be lost. So in other words, the reason is all about God. God and God's grace and God's salvation and God's redemption. Planned, accomplished, promised, applied. It's very nature. All of these things make it impossible for someone to be truly saved and then go back into a state of sin and be damned. Can't happen. Because of God. The eternal plan of redemption. Upon the immutability of the decree of election. Flowing from the free and unchangeable love. Of God the Father. For whom he foreknew. Or whom he foreknows. He also foreordains. To be conformed to the image of his son. That he might be the foresporn among many brethren, and whom he foreordains, then he also calls, and whom he calls, then he also justifies, and whom he justifies, then he also glorifies. Now in the English, we use the present tense when we speak of axioms. In the Greek, they use the aorist tense. It's called the axiomatic aorist. We use the present tense in English to speak of these things. The idea is that this is axiomatic, that this is what God does. If God predestines someone, then he calls them. And if he calls them, then he justifies them. And if he justifies them, then he glorifies them. Because God's decree and God's love are unchangeable. And there's never an exception. There's never someone that he predestines that he doesn't call. There's never anyone that he calls that he doesn't justify. And there's never anyone that he justifies that he doesn't glorify. So it's not possible because of God's unchangeable decree for someone to be justified and then go to hell. Or someone to be called out of darkness and light and not be glorified. Doesn't happen. Can't happen. Not because of the free will of man, but because of the unchangeable decree of God. And his love. That's what Paul's talking about. The eternal plan of redemption is immutable and his love is that ordains it, is unchangeable. The messianic accomplishment of redemption, the efficacy of the merit and intercession of Christ. If Christ died for someone, he can't be damned. If Christ prays for someone, he can't be damned. The merit of Jesus Christ is the second ground. Romans 5, 9 and 10 they appeal to, much more than now, being justified by his blood, will we be saved from the wrath of God through him. And Hebrews 7, 25, wherefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come to God by him, because he ever lives to make intercession for them. If Christ dies for us, and if Christ prays for us, because we're truly his, And of all those that he has given to him, he has lost none, only the son of perdition that was before ordained to that fate by his own sin and wickedness. If Jesus prays and Jesus dies, the merit of his death and of his prayer is such that it is the ground of the certain perseverance of all those for whom he dies and for whom he prays. And thirdly, the solemn promise of redemption, the oath of God, Hebrews six seventeen and 18, wherein God being minded to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability of his counsel, interposed with an oath that by two immutable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we may have a strong encouragement who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us because God has sworn with an oath. I will put my fear in their hearts that they might not depart from me. I will never turn away from following after them to do them good. God going to lie about that? No, it's not left up to us. The reason that we persevere is not up to us. It's up to God. It's up to God's oath, and God's going to keep His oath, and that's what He swore to do. And the the personal application of redemption. Notice how they put it. The abiding of His Spirit and the seed of God within them. John fourteen sixteen, they appeal to this. The spirit of truth, he will be in you. And 1 John two twenty seven, the anointing which you have received from him remains in you. And 1 John 3, 9, whosoever is born of God doesn't commit sin. That is, he doesn't live in sin because his seed remains in him and he cannot sin. Can't go back into the state of sin because he's born of God. The Holy Spirit regenerates the heart. The Holy Spirit dwells in the heart. He writes the word on the heart. And that work of the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Holy Spirit is permanent. And because it is, a person who has experienced it can never go back into the state of sin. His seed abides in him and he cannot go back into a state of sin. He can't live in sin again. He can't go from being a saint back to being a sinner. In whom sin reigns. can't happen because he's born of God. The very nature of the application of redemption forbids it. So you have the plan of redemption, the accomplishment of redemption, the promise of redemption, the application of redemption, and the very nature of redemption, the nature of the covenant of grace, the very substance of what God promises, and they appeal to the text they already quoted. Really, this is just an unfolding of the oath of God, because this is what God swears with an oath. Jeremiah 32:40, And I will make an everlasting covenant with them that I will not turn away from them to do them good, and I will put my fear in their hearts that they will not depart from me. Because God's not going to go back on his oath and because this is what he swears to do, it's going to happen. He swears the preservation of the saints. I will never turn away from following after them to do them good and the perseverance of the saints. And I will put my fear in their hearts so that they will not depart from The reason is because God has promised to do it, and this is what he's promised to do. This is the nature of redemption. The preservation of the saints is certain. Their perseverance is necessary, and God guarantees it in the new covenant. He guarantees that the reason we will persevere is because he has sworn with an oath to put his fear in our hearts so that we will not depart from him. It's not about us. If we fear God, it's because he put his fear in our hearts. And he put his fear in our hearts because that's what he promised to do. He swore with an oath to do it, and he does it. That's why we persevere. So this is the unshakable ground. Not the free will of Christians, but God's glorious work of redemption, planned in eternity, accomplished in Christ, promised in his covenants, applied in the Christian life, and in its very nature, the very substance of what he promises, the preservation and perseverance of the saints is guaranteed because God says he's going to do it and he always does what he says he's going to do. So how can a Christian go back into a state of sin if these things are so? How is that possible? It's not. can't happen. Now, having said that, they give you the overview, they give you the solid grounds. Now, they're going to deal with what I have called a needful qualification. Wait a minute, this needs to be qualified. We've got to qualify this. And how do they qualify it? Well, they qualify it by speaking about An anomaly. Now what's an anomaly? An anomaly is a deviation from what would be expected. You you wouldn't expect to read what you're going to read in paragraph 3. It's an anomaly. It doesn't seem to fit. But the Bible teaches that it's true. And the whole doctrine or the the whole of what Scripture says about the perseverance of the saints is such that you're not going to get the story straight if you don't understand this anomaly, this unexpected development that's part of the truth. And that unexpected development or that unexpected thing is the backsliding of genuine Christians. The backsliding of true saints. And they deal with this needful qualification. So when we say that if you're saved... You can never go back into a state of sin. We need to qualify that. It doesn't mean that a Christian can never get himself or herself into a backslidden state. It doesn't mean that. And so they qualify it in paragraph three. And though. Here's a qualification. A concession. It's a concessive. And though or although. And though they may. It's possible we have to make a qualification or a concession. There's an anomaly often associated with this, and that anomaly is backsliding. They don't use the word backsliding, but that's what they're talking about. And though uh, though they may, true saints in the state of grace that will persevere, they may, how? Through the temptation of Satan and of the world. How? How? Through the prevalency of corruption remaining in them, not reigning, remaining in them. How? And the neglect of the means of their preservation. And though they may, through these things, although they may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. That's what I'm referring to as backsliding. Backsliding is a true saint falling into grievous sin and remaining for a time in that grievous sin. That's a backslidden state. You understand? It may happen. Doesn't have to happen. God forbid it happens to you. God forbid it happens to me. Could happen to me. Could happen to you. Could happen to any true Christian. May happen. Doesn't have to happen. They may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. Now, then they're going to describe the fruits or consequences of being in a backslidden state. Whereby, that is, when they get into a backslidden state, when they fall into grievous sins and for a time continue in those grievous sins or grievous sin. What happens? Whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve his Holy Spirit. Whereby they come to have their graces and comforts impaired. Thirdly, whereby they have their hearts hardened and their consciences wounded. Fourthly, whereby they Hurt and scandalize others. And fifth and finally. And whereby they bring temporal judgments on themselves. So do you see that they have five consequences of backsliding? And then they close with this. Although or though they may fall into grievous sins, yet they will renew their repentance, yet shall they renew their repentance and be preserved through faith in Christ Jesus to the end. They close with the reality of the restoration of true saints from backsliding. So you have the... The reality, the pos- I would call it the possibility. They may. Not necessity, thank God, but the possibility of backsliding. So watch out. Because as a true Christian, backsliding is possible for you and for me. So they talk about the possibility of backsliding. That's what this paragraph is about. The anomaly, the possibility of backsliding. They may get into a backslidden state. They may fall into grievous sins and for a time continue therein. Backsliding is a possibility. And then the confessions highlight three features of backsliding. Its occasions, its consequences, and its restoration. Its occasions, consequences and restoration. Now how do they know that it's possible for Christians to get into a backslidden state? Well they appeal to the fall of Peter and Westminster Confession also cites Psalm 51 regarding David. So they they quote Matthew 26 where Peter denied the Lord and Psalm 51 where David fell into sin regarding Bathsheba and Uriah. Now first of all Note the occasions of backsliding. First, temptation. Through the temptation of Satan and of the world. Second, through unmortified remaining sin. The prevalency, that is an unmortified remaining sin. The prevalency of corruption, that is corruption remaining in them may prevail, may be unmortified. And thirdly, spiritual neglect and the neglect of the means of their preservation, neglecting going to church, neglecting private prayer, neglecting Bible reading, neglecting to read your Bible, neglecting to pray, neglecting to go to church, neglecting the means of grace, neglecting these things. It's possible through neglect and through neglect ceasing to mortify a particular sin, giving up on fighting against it, or being tempted by the world, carnal friends, or by the devil. So so through temptation, and through making peace treaties with remaining sin, getting sick and tired of fighting it, and neglecting the means of grace, it's possible for Christians true Christians, to fall into grievous sins and remain for a while under those sins. It's possible for it to happen. That's how it happens. It happens through temptation. It happens through neglect. And it happens through giving up fighting against sins. Those are the occasions that leave Christians vulnerable to falling into great sins and staying for a while in those great sins. Second thing that they address, the consequences of backsliding, the horrible consequences. Five, the fatherly displeasure of God, the withering of grace and comfort, the defiling of conscience, offending and being a bad testimony, and then bringing God's chastising upon us. First of all, God's fatherly displeasure. Whereby they incur God's displeasure and grieve the Holy Spirit. Second Samuel 11, 27. And when the morning, that is, for Uriah was past, David sent and fetched her Bathsheba to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you're sealed to the day of redemption. The context enumerates the kind of behavior that grieves the Holy Spirit of God. Secondly, withered grace and comfort. They come to have their graces and comforts impaired. Psalm 51, 8, 10, and 12. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which you have broken may rejoice. Create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Uphold me with a willing spirit. Defiled hearts and consciences have their hearts hardened, their consciences wounded. They appealed to Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silence, my bones waxed old. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. People offended, hurt, and scandalize others. 2 Samuel 12, 14. How be it? Because by this deed, speaking of what David did, you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme The child that is born to you will surely die. And finally, God's fatherly chastisement and punishment and bring temporal judgments upon themselves. 1 Corinthians 11.32 But when we're judged, we're chastened by the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. Now these are sad and tragic consequences of living in a backslidden state. And yet, it's pretty accurate, wouldn't you say? I hope you never find out how true this is. If you already know, isn't that a good reason never to want to go back there? And finally, the good news. Restoration. Yet, they will. Why? Because God preserves the saints. They will renew their repentance and be preserved through faith to the end. But I have prayed for you. They appeal to the restoration of Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. And when the Lord looked at Peter, we read in twenty, um, Luke 22.62 that Peter went out and wept bitterly. That the Lord brought him as he brings backsliders to renewed repentance, faith, and perseverance. So that's an overview of I mean that, that you know that's what we have in the confession. That's it really is an overview that I gave you today. Could expound a lot of that in much detail. But anyway, in the first you have the distinguishing features, paragraph one of perseverance. In paragraph two, you have the solid grounds. Paragraph three, the qualification or concession, the possibility of backslide. So that's how our confession of faith deals with perseverance. You have questions or comments this morning?